Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 13. And while you're turning there, I want to introduce you, introduce myself to you. For those who don't know me, I'm Elliot Everett. I'm the new RUF campus minister, uh, Reform University Fellowship here at Mercer. I've been here for four months almost, and it's been a, uh, a great time. And I'm so blessed to have this opportunity to be before you. And I, I want to thank you on two fronts. So the first front is uh, thank you so much for giving me and my family such a warm and welcoming home uh, to, as we've made this transition uh, to Macon. And also I want to thank you for your year in and year out faithful support of the ministry of RUF at Mercer. We will be uh, celebrating by God's grace uh, 25 years of ministry on Mercer's campus uh, and uh, so much of that due to your support and investment in that ministry. So I do thank you. I do have, have had some connections uh, to this church in my life. Uh, I grew up in the same church as your former pastor, Rick Canada, First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and that also means that I cut my teeth uh, quite literally uh, under the preaching of Dr. Jim Baird. But most importantly, my wife uh, was a student at Mercer, and she was a member here at this church uh, during her years at Mercer. So that, that is probably the, most, uh, the best connection that I have to you. So thank you for letting me be before you. If you would, look at Exodus 13 with me, and let's read the the last passage of the chapter, starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Sends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading of it and write its eternal truth upon our hearts. I had a favorite uh, reality show a few years ago called Surviving the Cut, and I think most of my fascination with this show is that it was um, it had to do with the elite forces of our military, and I'm generally in awe uh, of the men and women uh, in uniform for our country. But this show was so fascinating. What it did is it it, show, it chronicled the basic trainings of different segments, uh, different elite segments of our military, like the Green Berets or Marine Recon or, or uh, snipers or special forces divers. And what was fascinating about the show is that the men who volunteer for what is often m- weeks and months of grueling physical and emotional toil, they're already in. They're already in uniform, and and in most cases, they are already elite uh, as far as the military is concerned. 
But above all, I think what is most fascinating is at the end of these, these trials, this testing that they would voluntarily sign up for and voluntarily go through, if they passed, they weren't ready yet. If they passed, all they had proven was that they were worthy now to then be trained. For instance, the, the ranger at the end of passing this basic training, he could put on the ranger badge, but he was not ready to go to the battlefield yet. He still had training to go. Or the special forces diver, already um, an elite special forces person, has proven himself worthy of being a rescue diver, but he's not yet ready to be a rescue diver. There was continuing work, continuing training, even after this grueling weeks and months uh, of training that they'd already been through. Similarly, 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 I think we see in this passage, God is showing us a continuing salvation for his people. They, they're up and they're out, they're, they've left Egypt, they're on their way, but there's a grand sense that as we're halfway through the narrative uh, of Exodus here, that it's only the beginning, that it's just the beginning, that there's more to go, that God has a grander salvation in view in which he will lead his people. We see at the end of chapter 12, Pharaoh relents and he urges the people of God to leave. And in verse 37 of chapter 12, uh, we see that the people leave about 600,000 men besides women and children. So you're talking about a great group of people and they're up and they're out on their way. And then at the end of 12 and the the beginning of 13, you get this little aside about instituting the, the Passover and consecrating the firstborn. But in our passage, Moses picks up the story. And there's a sense that it's a new beginning, that there's more to go. God has promised salvation. God has accomplished salvation. They're up and out on their way. The yoke of slavery has been broken, but the story continues. Because God is not done with his people yet. And he will bring them into that knowledge. Salvation is not done in a moment and the journey continues as God leads the way. And I want to see three things in this passage. First, I want to look at this unlikely path that God takes his people down. This reference that Moses makes to a fulfilled promise. And then finally, we see this guiding presence. The first thing we see in verses 17 and 18 is this unlikely path. Moses draws our attention to the fact that God did not lead his people down the road that led through the land of the Philistines, though it was near. And by all accounts, this road would have been the most well-defined, most well-traveled road in ancient times. Uh, but, and it, it also was the most direct route to the promised land. Commentators say that it would have taken the people only two weeks to get to the promised land if they had gone down this road. So we have the world's most well-known, most well-defined road, but it's not God's road for his people. Instead, he leads them by the way of the wilderness. And he gives the reasoning behind it in the end of verse 17 there. He says, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. You see, the people are not ready to face the world. God knew that. This is a slave people. 400 years of slavery, and God knows them, and he knows they are not ready to face the world, because this well-traveled road would have been a well-guarded road. Egypt would have had heavy economic interest in this road, so conflict would have been inevitable. God's people are not ready yet. The interesting note, you look at the end of verse 18 there. Moses says, as my ESV has it, that they went out of Egypt equipped for battle. 
So we wonder, what, you know, if this is this whole huge, formidable force of people equipped for battle, why would conflict have been that big of a deal? But if you think about it, even if they had weaponry, it wouldn't have been anything significant, and they probably wouldn't have really known what to do with it. And second, like I said, these are slaves. Four centuries of slavery, of sojourning, of being away from home. This people, it's part of their DNA. And perhaps most likely what Moses is saying in a quit for battle is that they left in this orderly fashion. But at the same time, we still have to step back and wonder, what is God doing? Even if this was a well-guarded road, even if conflict's inevitable, this is a formidable force of people. You're talking about a destination that's not that far away. If battle's the big deal, you flip a few pages ahead, and just in two months, they're going to be in battle. So, I mean, is it that they needed two months to get ready for war? You see, it's natural to ask these questions. It would have been natural for this to be in the minds and hearts of the people. Where are we going? Where are we headed? Why are we going this way? It, It sticks out to us here at the beginning of the passage. And what this is, I think, is a shining example for us that God's ways are not our ways. There's a direct contrast here between God's leading and Israel's desire to go elsewhere. And that will become a theme, if you know anything of your Old Testament, that will become a theme for the whole history of this nation. The contrast between God's leading and their desire to go elsewhere. God's ways are not our ways, but more importantly, God's way is God's way, which makes it the best way for his glory and for his people's good, he will tell us in Scripture. So in one sense, you think about this, yes, salvation's been wrought, the yoke of slavery's been broken, the people are on the move with great possession and great potential, but what's being spoken to us here is this. A greater salvation is in view. A more complete salvation, you might say. And all these questions that we could ask about an unlikely path and all these questions that they most likely would have asked themselves, they're natural to us. The scriptures are littered, the Psalms are littered with people doubting, people wondering, people crying out to God, where are you? Where are we going? The book of Job, right? We have this whole book of the Bible centered around this man's life. And him asking the same questions. Job's life on his eye level takes this completely unexpected turn as everything in his life is turned upside down and he's trying to process all that's going on in his circumstances. His wife gives him an answer. Just curse God and die. His friends come. They don't fare any better in trying to help him process what's going on in his life. And he struggles mightily in the midst of the trial and searches for answers. We find this beautiful thought of Job In Job 23, as he's in the midst of dealing with the circumstances of his life, he says this, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. You see, despite his struggle, struggle, despite his struggle to come to terms with what was going on in his life, this path that his life had taken, Job knew something. He knew that the circumstances of life, even with all their mystery, were the circumstances that God had written into his life. 
So though he struggled to know what God was doing, he still clung by faith to the fact that God was doing something. I don't know what you carry in here with you today. Perhaps what you've carried for years, maybe just recently. Kind of pain or brokenness or um, whatever burden you carry with you. I encourage you. Take a look at this story. Take a look at the story of deliverance. And I think what you will find is that in all things in your life, God has a greater salvation in view. A more complete salvation, we could say. And the thing about it is, is as the story continues here and in the whole uh, canon of Scripture and in our lives, we find out that this complete salvation is a sure thing. And that's what we see in the second point here in verse 19. We see this fulfilled, fulfilled promise. We read in verse 19 that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made them solemnly swear that they would do so. So basically, you're reading the story, and all of a sudden, what seems like an aside verse, Moses just kind of throws in there, oh, by the way, we got the bones of Joseph. But I want you to see how pertinent this is that Moses includes this for us. You see, time and time again, as Moses records the events of Exodus, what he's been doing is he's been going back and linking the events of Exodus to that of Genesis, to the beginning See, the the book of Exodus opens by telling about how the last hero of Genesis was forgotten. And so the favor of his people was also forgotten. We read about how the 400 years of sojourning that God explicitly promised to Abraham, how that has been fulfilled. We read the allusion to Noah in the ark and the birth narrative of Moses. We see the creation imagery as we read through the plagues. And then speaking of unlikely paths, What better example than Joseph? What better example of the twists and turns of providence and the sovereignty of God ruling over even the evil intentions of men than Joseph? See, what what Moses is pointing us to when he points out this promise that Joseph clung to and this promise that he made Israel swear is that God is working this grand salvation just as he was doing in the life of Joseph. And just as he was doing in the life of Jacob before him. And just as he was doing in the life of Isaac before him. And Abraham before him. And Noah before him. And Seth before him. And Abel before him. And Adam before him. In other words, this grand salvation that he works in the lives of his people. He's working it. Because he's promised to, and he'll do it. So I want you to see what the mention of Joseph points us to. Yes, a man among men, but listen, listen how the author of Hebrews processes this promise that uh, Joseph made Israel swear. He says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Listen how one commentator puts this. In Joseph's dying wish, we have a last exhibition of faith in the promises of God. See, what what Moses draws out for us in the seemingly side verse is that God had a promise to keep. And Joseph knew that. 
In fact, Joseph never viewed Egypt as home. You think about all the success and blessing that came from Joseph being in Egypt and all the success and blessing that came to the people of God and saved them from famine that came from Egypt, yet he never viewed it as home. You see, Joseph knew that the promised land was more than just a better life. Joseph knew that the promised land pointed to eternal life. And I have to wonder, have we understood this? Do we believe it? Do we live it? Or does the way that we live, is the way that we are living, is it telling the world, or maybe more importantly, our children, that this is all we have? Is the way you're working every day, what is it telling the world? The way you save, the things you pursue, Joseph knew the promised land didn't just promise a better life, but eternal life. It doesn't take but just a quick perusal of the headlines on any given day to know that God help us if this is all there is. And what he tells us in this story is it's not. We actually have an inheritance that is undefiled, imperishable, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It's what Moses is telling the second generation Exodus audience here is that God had a promise to keep and the departure was only a part of it. And what better example than Joseph? But you see, Joseph isn't the main character here. Moses isn't the main character. Pharaoh wasn't the main character. God is the story. And he is writing this story every pen stroke, the salvation that he's bringing And what we need to hear today, Christian, God is the author of this story. He's the author of your story. God, think about this, the God of the universe who holds everything that is in his hands, that through him, everything that exists, exists. That God cares enough about you to order each and every circumstance of your life. He cares enough about you that not a hair falls from your head outside of his will. Paul can say with confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Why? Because he has bound himself to you by his word, and his word does not return to him empty. He has a promise to keep. This is the God, this promise-making, this promise-keeping God. This is the God that this people will follow out into the wilderness. And Moses is calling them to follow by faith. The last thing here is, how will they do that? How will they follow him by faith? That's a lot easier said than done. And we get the answer in verses 20 through 22 as we see this guiding presence See, God knew what he was doing when he leads his people down this unlikely path. He's got this promise to keep that's bigger than just merely the departure from Egypt. And what he tells his people is, you know what? I'm going to be there every single step of the way. This pillar of cloud and fire. It's one of those great pictures that you remember from Sunday school, right? And many critics have uh, tried to explain it away, but Moses tells us plainly here, That this pillar went before them day and night, and it never departed. This isn't just some dust cloud that they're kicking up. It's not just the the smoke from their campfires and the, the, the light of their fires on the horizon. 
But you know, those who would doubt it, they are right in a sense. There is no reasonable explanation for this other than the loving, tender hand of God Almighty who had set his heart on his people, and he is going to be with them. He's going to lead them. He's going to be with them. He's going to be for them. He's going to be before them. And this image of cloud and fire, it's going to become a refrain of God's presence. It's going to, in chapter 14, it's going to move and confuse the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Uh, The whole camp of Israel is going to behold it as it descends on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. It's going to descend on the tent of meeting uh, to speak with Moses in chapter 33. And it will move from the tent uh, in, in, during Israel's wilderness wanderings to, to signal to them that it's time to move. But it's interesting to note here, they're up and they're out on their way, God's leading them into the wilderness. There does not seem to be anything standing in the way of deliverance here. There does not seem any, to be any obstacle in the salvation of God's people here, but God, by his continual presence, he's going to be there. He's going to guide them because... He is working salvation. He is working salvation. There's nothing threatening him, threatening them immediately, it may seem. But God is working. God's presence in this manner is going to be with his people for the next 40 years. He's working salvation. How? By being with them. By being before them. And by being for them. So we have to ask, well, what is, what is this salvation? It's simply this. Knowing this God, he's going to bring them to a fuller knowledge of himself, and he will stop at nothing to do it. What begins here and rages on forward in the history of this people is one simple fact that God is going to say to his people, your identity is not in your plight. Your identity is not in your circumstances. Your identity is in me. And what better way can I show that to you than to be with you? Leviticus chapter 23, God ordains this feast called the Feast of Booths to be kept yearly uh, to commemorate the wilderness wanderings when the people of Israel dwelt in tents. And you fast forward a few hundred years, and when they kept this feast in Jerusalem, what they would do is that all the people in Jerusalem, you would set up a tent in your courtyard, and you would live in that for the week and feast. So it's kind of like a big tailgate that lasts all week long. But what's interesting is that at the temple, the highest point of the city, this great structure, they took these torches or candles. uh, some, Some people record them being 75 feet tall. And they would have these big bowls at the top full of oil. And, every, and for the whole week, these things would be blazing with fire. So at night, they could be reminded of God's presence with the people, with their forefathers in the wilderness. And what's interesting is that John, in his gospel, records for us, in that context, during that feast, our Lord Jesus stood up and said to all that would listen, I am the light of the world. What was he saying? He's saying that he is the image of the invisible God come down to take on flesh and dwell with his people. Truly, our Emmanuel in the flesh, God with us. And you see, what he did is he came down and he entered our wilderness. He was with us. He was before us. 
And he went for us to Calvary. He kept his promise by redeeming us with his own blood. And in that last moment, before he breathed his last, he declared perhaps the greatest statement that's ever been said in the history of the world, it is finished. It is. But at the same time, Christian, God is not finished with you yet. This church, our church, the church in this country, the church in the world, the kingdom, as God is building it through the spread of his gospel, he is not finished. And he will not stop until it fills the entire earth, until every tongue confesses and every knee bows. His last day on earth, as he gathered before his ascension, and the disciples gathered some still doubting. And before he left this earth, he said one thing, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know what he meant? I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. He ransomed our souls. We have this inheritance with him, but God is not finished with us yet. This is why Paul can say in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How? For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christian, God is not done with you yet. He's always working salvation, and we have no reason to fear, no reason to be anxious, to doubt about anything, because He is with us. Not only is He with us, He has taken up His dwelling place in us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Whatever the path you are on, whatever the the path you find yourself on this morning, whether you have no clue what it is, He is not done with you yet. And you can look at whatever path you're on this morning and you can know one thing for sure, that whatever your circumstances may be, they are are this, the unfolding of His promises in your life. He's promised us that. He's assured us of that. He made payment for that. It's complete, it's sure, and He sends His Spirit as a seal of it. This promise unfolding in our life, leading us to our ultimate destiny, to be in his presence. And as Jude tells us, he cannot wait to present us. And when he does, he will do it with exceeding great joy. Whatever the path, cling to his promises. And long and seek to be in his presence. It's where he's leading us. It's what he's working. It's what he's doing. We may not always know the what and the how, but we know where it's going, and we know that it's sure. May that be true of all of us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we take great trust in knowing that you order our steps, that you lead us, that you guide us, 
Father, that even when the world grows dark and dim around us, you are there. Father, we cling to your promises this morning, knowing that you've begun something that you will complete. We long to be in your presence, and we pray that you would lead us there, that we would know and go forth from this place, knowing that you are not finished with us yet. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.